We've seen that we're living at a special time near the end of the church age, and that we expect Jesus to come soon. We have the honor of being chosen to run the last lap of a relay race that started almost 2,000 years ago. The baton has been handed to us, and we must run a good race, looking to Jesus, who will meet us at the finishing line at his return. In order to understand what God is doing in our times and cooperate with it, we will now study the events that the Bible indicates will happen as the church age comes to its close. The main purpose of the church age is a harvest from the nations, and so the special purpose for the final period of this age must be the completion of this harvest through evangelism and prayer. In Romans 11, Paul says that Israel's unbelief resulted in salvation going to the Gentiles in this age. And then in verse 25, he says, a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And so then all Israel will be saved. Thus, the central purpose of this age is the salvation of people from every nation, for this age will continue until this purpose is fulfilled. For when the full number of the Gentile harvest has come into the kingdom, Jesus will return to gather in this whole harvest to heaven by the rapture. Then in the tribulation, God's central purpose will be the salvation of Israel, so that by its end, all Israel will be saved. Thus, God's priority for this age is the harvest, as James 5.7 says, Be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth. When Jesus comes, he does it with the purpose of joyfully reaping and gathering this harvest into heaven. God wants a harvest from all nations. So to cooperate with his purposes, we must preach the gospel. This is imperative because the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. Thus God's priority for this age is the fulfillment of the Great Commission, to preach the gospel to every creature and disciple all nations. That's why Jesus said in Mark 13.10, the gospel must first be preached to all the nations. Although this is true for the whole church age, it must be especially urgent for us who live near the close of the age. Jesus is waiting for the harvest to come to its fullness, so we should expect a final harvest of souls to come in before he returns. Revelation 5.9 confirms God's purpose for the church age will be fulfilled. The 24 elders representing the raptured church in heaven saying, You are worthy for you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe, tongue, people and nation. This proves there will be a soul harvest from every nation before Jesus returns. In the parable of the sower and the parable of the wheat and the tares, Jesus compared the church age to an extended period of time, from the seed time of sowing to the harvest time of reaping, and said that the harvest was the end of the age, that's the tribulation. So the harvest time covers the whole tribulation, starting with the ingathering of the fullness of the Gentiles in the rapture, and ending with the ingathering of the Old Testament and tribulation saints at the second coming. Also, the saints who survive the tribulation will be gathered into the messianic kingdom, and throughout the tribulation all the unbelieving tares will be removed from the earth into the fires of Hades. In Israel, the agricultural year started with the sowing of seed at the end of October, which is when the early or former rain began to fall, which softened the earth to help it receive the seed. It was also essential for the seed's germination and early growth. Likewise, the reign of the Spirit softens the hearts of men, so they are able to receive God's word. There were also rains over the winter time, and then, in March and April, just before the harvest time, the latter rain would fall. These spring rains were essential in bringing the crops to their fullness for an abundant harvest. 
as the natural, so the spiritual. The former rain is a picture of the outpouring of the spirit at the start of the church age, causing the harvest to get off to a great start. As the church age comes towards its close, when its harvest is ingathered at the rapture, we should expect a great latter rain outpouring of the spirit, which is essential to bring forth the abundant final harvest that God desires. I believe the latter reign of the Spirit began in 1900 with the Pentecostal outpouring, which then transformed the church world through the charismatic movement. And today this is the fastest growing part of the church. So the modern Pentecostal outpouring is another sign of the end times. Living as we do near the close of the age, we should expect and pray for more of this latter rain before the Lord returns, for it's essential for the final harvest from the nations. The seed that must be sown in the earth is the word of God, of the gospel, that must be planted in men's hearts, but the seed needs rain to bring forth fruit, otherwise it remains dormant. Two things are necessary for the full harvest. First, the seed must be sown, and secondly, it must be watered by the rain. Rain was seen as the blessing of God falling on the earth and activating the seed to grow and produce. And likewise, we need the blessing of the outpoured spirit to fall on men's hearts and activate the word in their hearts. Thus, it's the spirit working with the word that brings forth the harvest. So as well as sowing the seed in evangelism, we need to water it with prayer. So the spirit falls on them with convicting power and they receive the word and bring forth fruit. James 5, 7 confirms these thoughts. He says, Be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. See, the farm, farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, waiting patiently for it until it, the precious fruit, gets the former and latter rains. The purpose of this age is the precious fruit of the earth, the saved souls. So when this precious fruit is fully ready to be harvested, Jesus will return. But first, in order for it to be ready, it's necessary for this precious fruit to receive both the former and latter rains. Therefore, it's essential for the reign of the Spirit to work with the seed of the word in order to bring forth the fruit of the earth. So as we sow the gospel seed in men's hearts, we should also pray for the anointing of the Spirit to soften their hearts and empower our words to them. A few verses later in James 5, he encourages us to do this by pointing to Elijah's example of praying for rain. As he says in verse 16, the effective prayer of a righteous man makes much power available, effective in its working. We release the power of the Spirit through prayer. And then he says, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed earnestly, and the heaven poured rain, and the earth produced its fruit. Notice the sequence. He prayed, which released rain from heaven, so that the earth produced its fruit. By saying Elijah was a man like us, James was saying we can do what Elijah did. In Christ, we're just as righteous as Elijah. So, we too can release the reign of God's Spirit upon the souls of men by prayer, so that the word sown in their hearts produces fruit. The fact James was thinking of the salvation of souls is clear from the next verses in verse 19 that says, He who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save a soul from death. So we're now in the time of the latter rain. So God's priority for us, all the more as the rapture draws near, is the seed sowing of evangelism, supported by prayer that releases the anointing. Zechariah 10.1 agrees, Ask rain from the Lord at the time of the spring or latter rain, and we're living in that time. The Lord will make the storm clouds, and he will give them showers of rain, crops in the field to each man. Notice the end result of the rain is a harvest of crops. So one key to opening the windows of heaven to release the blessing of the latter rain is prayer. 
Another key is praise, according to Psalm 67, verse 5. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Then the earth shall yield its produce. Our God, our God, blesses us with rain. God blesses us that all the ends of the earth may fear him. Here the seed is in the earth, but it needs God's blessing of rain to fall upon the earth in order to activate the seed to produce its fruit. The key that releases the blessing, the rain of God, is the praises of the people. The result of this rain is a great soul harvest, for when the blessing of rain is released, all the ends of the earth fear him. This is the earth yielding its produce. This works for us personally as well as when we're praying for others. The word may be sown in a person's heart, but be dormant, not producing fruit. But when we praise God for his faithfulness to fulfill his word and thank him for bringing it to pass, we activate and release the blessing and spirit of God to activate the word and cause it to bring forth its fruit. I believe the end of the church age will see a great final harvest of souls through the latter reign of the spirit, and we all have a part to play. Next, we move to a major world event that must happen in the time before the tribulation, the regathering of Israel to her land and her re-establishment as a nation there, after being scattered to all the nations. This was fulfilled in 1948, and it's one of the greatest miracles ever. As well as predicting Israel's captivity in Babylon because of idolatry, the Bible predicted a, a dispersion of Israel to all the nations. For example, in Deuteronomy 28, 64, it says, The Lord will scatter you among all peoples from one end of the earth to the other. Jesus confirmed this in Luke 21, 24. He said, Israel will fall by the edge of the sword and be led away captive unto all nations. And this was fulfilled in AD 70. The first time Israel went to Babylon for 70 years, but this time she was scattered to all nations for almost 1900 years. The only possible explanation is her national rejection of the Messiah. After warning Israel in Deuteronomy 29 that if they sinned, God would remove them from the land and disperse them, Deuteronomy 33 but to 5 predicts that they'll be regathered from all the nations. Let's read that. The Lord your God will bring you back from captivity and have compassion on you and gather you again from all the nations where the Lord your God has scattered you. The Lord your God will bring you to the land which your fathers possessed and you shall possess it. So Israel must be back in the land before the start of the tribulation because the prophecies of the tribulation assume that Israel is a nation in the land and in control of Jerusalem. The stage must be set before the final scene begins. So this requires the re-establishment of Israel as a nation before the tribulation begins. The return of Israel to her land from all nations and her rebirth as a nation is a major theme of Old Testament prophecy, which is why hundreds of years ago believers predicted it even when it looked impossible. Moreover, Jesus predicted in Luke 21:24, Israel will be led away captive to all nations, and Jerusalem will be trampled by Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. The until here indicates that, that this dispersion will only last for a definite period of time called the times of the Gentiles, after which Israel will come back to the land and regain control of Jerusalem. And the times of the Gentiles are therefore now over with the exception of the seven years of the tribulation yet to run. You need to read my book on the seven times of the Gentiles to get a further explanation of that. We've seen that Jesus gave the rebirth of Israel as the main sign by which we'd know we were in the final generation before the tribulation. He did that in the parable of the fig tree. Thus Israel's rebirth in 1948 proves that we're in the last days. 
To fully understand the prophecies concerning the regathering of Israel, it's important to know that the prophets spoke of two divinely ordained international returns. The first, or initial regathering from the nations, would only be partial and in unbelief. It would be in preparation for the tribulation, by the end of which God will bring Israel to faith in Christ. This regathering started in the last century and is still taking place now and is a major fulfillment of prophecy. This is the fig tree putting forth its leaves, but not yet bearing fruit, just as Jesus predicted. The second regathering will be after Israel has repented and received Christ. It will be a final and complete regathering with Israel in faith. And this will be accomplished by Christ himself at his second coming. And it will be in preparation for the millennium. And this is the fig tree bearing fruit. Thus Israel will first return to the land and then to the Lord. At that point, Jesus will return and complete her restoration. Prophecies of the first regathering in Ezekiel and Zephaniah indicate that Israel will then have to endure much suffering in the land before she receives Jesus as her Messiah. Daniel 9.27 says that early in the tribulation, the Antichrist will make a covenant with Israel which requires a regathered Jewish nation in unbelief before the tribulation. Isaiah calls it a covenant with death, bringing great suffering on Israel. Zechariah 12-14 shows Israel in the land in the end times, just before Christ's return. After tremendous suffering where two-thirds of the Jews are killed, that's in 13.8, they realize that Jesus is their Messiah, and, and that's 12.10. And they then receive cleansing from their sin in chapter 13. And then he returns to save them from their enemies in chapter 14. Ezekiel 36, 22-32 describes the cleansing and regeneration of Israel, but makes it clear that he regathers them to the land before this happens. The famous prophecy of the Valley of Dry Bones in Ezekiel 37 also describes the restoration of Israel in two stages. Verse 11 says, These bones are the whole house of Israel. So we're talking about Israel. Ezekiel was told to prophesy twice. The first time he spoke, God caused the scattered bones of Israel to come together, and they were covered with flesh, but there was no spirit in them. And this is the present regathering of Israel in unbelief. However, it's clearly a work of God, the result of his command. The second time Ezekiel spoke, the breath or spirit of God entered them and they lived, and this is the spiritual regeneration of Israel. Verse 14 says, I will put my spirit in you and you will live and I'll place you in your own land. So Israel's initial regathering as a nation is just preparation for her national spiritual restoration, after which she'll be fully regathered to her land and be permanently settled there in the millennium. Jesus described the final regathering at his second coming in Matthew 24:31. He will send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet and gather together his elect, Israel, from the four winds. By now, all Israel will be saved. And this final regathering is to establish her in the land for the millennium, where she'll be the chief nation. So, the first regathering is in preparation for the discipline of the tribulation, and the second is in preparation for the blessings of the millennium. Thus, the present situation of Israel is in perfect agreement with the prophetic word, which predicts that God will sovereignly and miraculously regather Israel before she comes to faith. He does it for his own namesake. 
It also predicts that this reborn Israel, and especially Jerusalem, will be the centre of controversy among the nations, and that it will be an end-time sign to the nations of his coming kingdom when he will fully restore Israel. Israel will increasingly be an issue that divides the people who know God's word and spirit from those under the spirit of this world. Whether you're working for or against God in these end times will be greatly determined by your attitude towards Israel. Satan, who controls the spirit of this world, seeks to destroy Israel, for by so doing he would cause God's word and plan to fail. This is the spiritual cause of anti-Semitism and the irrational hatred of the Jews, and the repeated attempts in history to commit genocide against them. The world will increasingly be aligned against Israel, climaxing at Armageddon. However, the true people of God will be revealed by their blessing of Israel. In the judgment of sheep and goats in Matthew 25, what distinguished the sheep from the goats was their attitude to those that Jesus called my brethren. This primarily refers to the Jews. Your attitude to Israel will determine whether your life comes under blessing or curse, because Genesis 12.3 is still in force. He said, I'll make you a great nation. So he's talking about the nation of Israel. I will bless those who bless you and curse him who curses you. Sadly, the anti-Semitic spirit of this world has even invaded the church through replacement theology, which says that God has cancelled his election of Israel and transferred it to the church. This gives a basis for those who oppose Israel, for they can say, they're doing God's will, for if God rejected Israel, then we should also. However, Romans 11 is clear that although Israel is in unbelief, she is still the elect nation of God, and that God will judge the Gentiles who boast against her. We've also established the present nation of Israel is no accident, but a miraculous fulfillment of prophecy, the result of a sovereign act of God who's still fulfilling his purposes for Israel. Indeed, all agree that Israel's scattering was a result of God's judgment, and whatever God does in blessing or cursing, no man can reverse. Therefore, the rebirth of Israel must be the work of God. Therefore, we need to align ourselves with God's purposes for Israel and bless what God's doing, rather than opposing it, lest we find ourselves resisting God. We should also bless Israel because we owe her a great debt of gratitude. As Jesus said in John 4.22, salvation is from the Jews. They gave us our Bible and our Saviour. The persecutions of church history have only compounded this debt. We should bless Israel, first, by supporting evangelistic and mercy missions to her, and second, spiritually through prayer, praise and proclamation. Jeremiah 31 gives a wonderful summary of what God commands us to do. Verse 7 says, Thus says the Lord, Sing with gladness for Jacob, and shout among the chief of the nations. Proclaim, give praise, and pray, O Lord, save your people, the remnant of Israel. So first, we are to rejoice and praise God when we see him fulfilling his promises to Israel. Second, we are to pray for Israel, particularly for their salvation through Jesus Christ. Save your people. Third, in the face of all the anti-Israel voices, we're to be loyal to Israel, for we are in covenant with the God of Israel. We are to speak for Israel and proclaim God's word concerning Israel. 
What we are to proclaim is given in verse 10. Hear the word of the Lord, O nations, and declare it in the isles afar off, and say, He who scattered Israel will gather him and protect him as a shepherd does his flock. I proclaim, therefore, to you that the one who scattered Israel is has gathering her right now, and he will protect her. The next major event prophesied to happen in the end times, before the tribulation, is Jerusalem coming back under Israel's control. This is necessary because prophecies of the tribulation assume a Jewish Jerusalem, and this was fulfilled in 1967. Jerusalem under Jewish control is another sign that we're getting close to the tribulation. Jerusalem's recapture is highly significant because it's the city of the great king. Jesus said that in Matthew 5:35. It's also the place of God's throne on earth. Jesus will rule the world from Jerusalem, which is why it's the center of spiritual warfare and of the controversy of nations, uh, as Zechariah 12, 2 and 3 says. And this controversy will lead up to the Battle of Armageddon itself, and that's why Jesus will return to Jerusalem. And you can see that in Zechariah 14. The restoration of Jewish sovereignty over Jerusalem was prophesied in Luke 21, 24. Jesus said, Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. This tells us that Jerusalem's recapture in 1967 officially marks the end of the times of Gentile dominion over Israel, for Jerusalem is the God-ordained capital and seat of authority of Israel. The times of the Gentiles began with Nebuchadnezzar in about 600 BC, and it lasted over 2,500 years. It was a period when God disciplined Israel by putting her under Gentile control. But now it's finished. The nations no longer have the right to exercise dominion over Israel, and God will judge any of them if they try. Another thing that must take place before the tribulation is preparations to rebuild the temple, and perhaps even the rebuilding itself, although that might take place early in the tribulation. Four passages of scripture show that there will be a tribulation temple. The first is Daniel 9.27. He, the Antichrist, shall confirm a covenant with many, that's the majority in Israel, for one week, that's seven years. But in the middle of the week, in the middle of the seven years, he'll bring an end to sacrifice and offering in the temple. And on the wing of the temple, he'll set up an abomination that causes desolation until the end decreed is poured out on him. This describes Daniel's 70th week. Antichrist makes a treaty with Israel near the start of this seven-year tribulation, which allows Israel to worship in their temple. However, halfway through the seven years, he'll break this covenant, take over the temple, and stop the Jewish worship. He'll desecrate it by putting up an idolatrous image of himself in the temple, dedicating it to himself. The second scripture that talks about the end-time temple is Matthew 24:15. Jesus said, When you see, standing in the holy place of the temple, the abomination that causes desolation, spoken of by the prophet Daniel, that we just saw, then let those in Judea flee. Jesus is referring to Daniel 9:27, saying its fulfillment was still future. He confirmed that the abomination would be part of the sequence of tribulation events leading up to the second coming. 
The third scripture talking about the tribulation temple is 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 verse 4 saying about the Antichrist he will oppose and exalt himself over everything that's called God or is worshipped so that he sets himself up in God's temple proclaiming himself to be God. And so you see this speaks of the same event of the other scriptures when the Antichrist takes over the temple at mid-tribulation. And some see this third temple, this tribulation temple, as not being in God's will, but it is called here the temple of God. The fourth scripture is Revelation 11, verse 1 to 2, which is, Go and measure the temple of God and the altar, and count the worshippers there, but exclude the outer court. Don't measure it, because it's been given to the Gentiles. Again we see there'll be a Jewish temple in the tribulation. The Temple Mount will be shared with the Gentiles as agreed in her covenant with Antichrist. It will be the ministry base for the two witnesses who will preach Christ to Israel in the first half of the tribulation. The preparations for the temple are well underway. The Temple Institute has been making all the necessary items for the temple including a gold menorah. Also a Levitical priesthood has been prepared to carry out the temple ministry. This third temple must be built where the Dome of the Rock is right now, because the rock is the location of the Holy of Holies. It even has a rectangular depression that's the right size for the Ark of the Covenant. It must be functioning, therefore, before the middle of the Tribulation. The Dome of the Rock, which proclaims in Arabic writing, God has no son, is a type of the abomination. Something dramatic must happen, like a great great earthquake to destroy it so the temple can be rebuilt. Perhaps this earthquake will be the one mentioned in the next major pre-tribulation event that I'm going to talk to now which is the invasion of Israel from the north. So another major event that will probably happen before the tribulation is a massive invasion of Israel from the north led by Russia supported by Iran, Turkey and many other Islamic nations. It's described in Ezekiel chapter 38 all the way up to 39.16. My book, The Imminent Invasion of Israel, gives a full explanation of this. The setting is Israel, regathered to her land in the last days, but before her national conversion. It'll seem as if Israel is totally overwhelmed by this invading army, but God says, you've come against my people and my land. So they're still in covenant with God. And so, in his wrath, God destroys this invading army with a combination of judgments, including a massive earthquake. So this will be one of the greatest, most dramatic divine interventions ever. God will demonstrate his glory and magnify himself in the sight of many nations, and they will know he is the Lord, the Holy One in Israel. And that's in Ezekiel 38:23 and 39:7. And they will know that the God of the Bible, the God of Israel, is still alive and well. It, this will be a catalyst for a worldwide revival. The world will be in awe for a time, especially since this will be such a clear and dramatic fulfillment of Bible prophecy. And this will give us a unique window of opportunity to share the gospel, so we need to be ready. This prophecy has never been fulfilled, and the setting and political alignments described in it perfectly fit the present time. Moreover, Ezekiel 39.9 says Israel will be burning the invaders' weapons for seven years. So it must take place at least seven years before the second coming. So it could be very early in the tribulation, but much more likely it'll be before the tribulation. 
I think it will happen soon. Perhaps Israel will attack Iran's nuclear facilities, giving Russia an excuse to gather a coalition against Israel. She'll claim to be liberating the Palestinians, but the prophecy reveals her real motives are economic and strategic. Thank you.